so I'm going to start off by throwing in a perception of mine. Yeah. And you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, Simon. That people are confused online, and particularly on Instagram, by the way you train. Yes, 100%. Yeah, and my take on that is because, and I think you're... (laughs) I respect you for not trying to put a label on it and not saying it's this or it's this. And I think that's what confuses people because people these days, they want to put a label on yeah. something. And I, and I know, sorry, before, before I let you sort of talk about it a little bit, um, it, it, I think it was a comment the other day. Someone said, um, is this uh, GVT, German volume training? Yeah, yeah. And you're like, no, because that's generally X, Y, Z. That's generally yeah. um, a certain way. I'm assuming you get that a lot. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think, um, I mean, my, my, my page has grown massively in the last year. Like last August, I, I reached 1,000 followers for the first time in 10 years, you know, and now I've got 131. So that's been quite a learning curve and suddenly a lot more interactions um, than, than I've ever had to deal with, you know. But, I mean, for many years, I trained on my own in the garage for 15 years and never went to a commercial gym. I just literally trained on my own for 15 years. So this sort of exposure is kind of weird for me. Um, and what I've 100% discovered is, and, and this is actually, I've, I've stolen this from Chris Williamson, who we just spoke about. Um, perfectionism is a form of pro, um, procrastination. Because what I'm finding is that everybody, or not everybody, but a significant minority of people who I have contact with want to know every single detail before they try something. Yeah. And that, to me, is asked about face. I mean, the way I think people should go about stuff is to try it and then learn from that and then make their own adjustments, you know. And, yes, they can see me doing something and try it, but try it yourself. And then and then some of those questions that they ask will, will be answered by them, which is probably the better way. Um, you know, you're better off learning by doing than learning by listening to me. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've found that really strange that, like adult men, mainly, because about 98% of my audience are men, mostly from America, actually, um, ask me things that I'm like, you, you might see me reply sometimes, like, you're an adult, like, work it out yourself. Like, because, I'd some, because you know, I sort of put my life on there, really, a little bit, and I go out drinking with my friends and, you know, get pretty plastered at times. And, you know, I'm a very normal guy, very sociable guy, I like going out. And, like, somebody asked me the other day, what did I consider an acceptable amount to drink for him? I'm like, you're an adult. Like, work it out yourself. It's not for me to tell you what an acceptable amount of alcohol is. Um, so I found that really strange that people, a friend of mine who owns Jets Gym up in, in Portsmouth, who I go to, he's an ex-Navy PTI and used to be the boxing coach for the Navy. He, he said, he, we were chatting the other day, and he said, your comments are hilarious he said they people want spoon feeding mm-hmm. and it, th- this is a this is a minority of people don't get me wrong i'm not 
this, this is a minority, but it's the ones that ask some of these questions, you know. I've had some excellent questions as well, you know, I want to balance that out, but the ones that stick out are that, like to my friend the other day when he was at, he was like, God, some people just need spoon feeding, why don't they just try and, and have a look, see what it's like? It'd be interesting to know the, the age of those people and whether it's a generational thing or not. But there are people yeah. that seem to be so willing to just give over their agency to other people. Yes. Yeah. Which is strange because I don't think I was ever brought up like that. Well, I wasn't really brought up, so I won't go into that. But um, I've always walked my own path, even though I've been in, you could say, jobs that are very institutionalised, really, like the Royal Marines and the police. I always walk my own path. I always have. And I, yes, I will absolutely watch people like Chris Bumstead and Montfell, uh, the new world's strongest man, Hooper's doing some incredible stuff. I don't know if you've seen any of his stuff. Um, and I watched and, and I will take certain bits I, was it Bruce Lee that said sort of I can't remember the exact phrase um, but you know take the best from every discipline or every person and discard the rest you know and that's I think you know I'm always learning and that's why I listen to so many podcasts probably not so much about fitness maybe more more general stuff maybe um, you're always learning there's never a point where you stop no and I think that's a really important point because as soon as you think you know everything you're in trouble yeah you're going to get hurt <laughs> yeah probably. one way or another probably yeah yeah well things change you know and science changes and um, what I have found like, if you ever heard of a guy called Vince Sharonda yes he was he was the iron guru. So he was he was kind of came to prominence in the sort of fifties and sixties. And he trained people like Clint Eastwood. He was trainer to the stars back in Hollywood back in the sixties, seventies. Um, Carl Weathers, Apollo Creed from um, Rocky, he trained him, and like I say, Clint Eastwood and and the very first Mister Olympia, Larry Scott. Well, he uh, his that was the first book I ever got on bodybuilding or really, it's called Unleashing the Wild Physique, and I think it was published in the early 80s. And he was laughed at, but a lot of the stuff he writes in that book, he was so way ahead of his time, it's crazy. You know, and I think what I found with some of my stuff is that science, and I'm not comparing myself to Vince, don't get me wrong, but some of the stuff I've been fairly dogmatic about for decades has kind of, science has caught me up bit like I've never iced an injury and now science says don't ice an injury you know I've never never done it and it's been the it's been the advice for my pretty much my entire career and it just never sat right with me because I thought are we saying the body's wrong when it swells and when it has inflammation are we saying it's wrong and we know better by sticking ice on it or is that part of the process of healing that inflammation and that swelling Otherwise, we're saying the body's wrong. And I think Absolutely. even when I was 15, I thought that. And now, like, you know, like nearly 40 years later, science has kind of gone, yeah, actually, ice isn't that great. Um, so, yeah, I just, Vince was a bit like that. And I've definitely found some of my stuff that I've been doing for years has kind of started to get a bit more mainstream, maybe. 
it's interesting you look at the likes of Grand, the, the stuff he was doing, if it didn't work, it wouldn't have um, persisted and, and, mm. and stayed because people yeah. have found out. Mm. But it does work and mm. it has stayed around. And it mm. persists and it continues moving forwards. You know, people yeah. go back to Gronda a lot. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I still use some of his style. Like he was, he loved his eight by eights, you know, and I quite often do that with a squat. And um, yeah, I just he was he was really lambasted though and ridiculed at times, but it's because he was so far ahead of everybody else, you know. And um, I mean, I, I get told that the way I train's wrong and um, <laughs> which is quite amusing really especially when I look at the people that are telling me it's wrong um, and stuff like that you know and you're, as you age you ought to be reducing volume increasing it and um, you know I do like three to four exercises a week and people are doing that in a workout you know and yeah I mean my style is my style and I don't think you know i, I I don't think that's the only way to train. I think there's many different styles of training. And I just happened on something that works particularly well for me. Yeah. But I've also, because I am a coach, I've seen it work for a lot of other people too. So, you know, I am, I'm dogmatic about something. Particular exercises I think are, are ridiculous and stuff like that. But, I don't believe mine's the only style of training. I, the only one style of training I really don't subscribe to at all is HIT, like the Dorian Yates, the Mike Mentor. Because what I've seen with that, because I've been around the game for over 40 years, is that a lot of those that were doing that back in the 80s and early 90s aren't training now. Because they've messed themselves up. Yeah, I, I think just a couple of points that you, that you mentioned there, which sort of resonate a little bit. Firstly, the people who will try and throw stones at the way that you that you train, mm-hmm. not that you give a shit because you'll just continue to do it anyway. Yeah, <laughs> they're very sort of being and livelihoods being challenged because they're trying to sell it. To, let's say online online coaches. Yeah, yeah. some online coaches. I will caveat that with um, are challenged by something that isn't what they're trying to sell because it's exposing people to something else other than the thing that they're getting their clients to pay for, that they're saying is the only way they're going to mm. build muscle, lose fat, and get beach body ready, whatever whatever their thing is that they're mm. putting out in the marketing. And I think they're challenged by that. And they'll throw stones at everybody who isn't saying the same thing as them, which is buy their thing. Yeah. Yeah, and I get that. You know, it's a marketing thing. I get it, you know. And it's not just in the fitness industry. A lot of markets are yeah. doing that. You know, yeah. Their car's the best or their whatever is the best, you know. Um, and that's because they want to sell their product. I get it. Um, but I've been doing this so long. And like I said, I did it for 15 years in, in, a, in a garage with nobody watching. You know, I didn't realise my way of training was so different to everybody else's until my marriage broke up and I lost my home gym, which was in my garage. And I ended up going with David Lloyd. I remember the first time I trained in David Lloyd after 15 years in a garage, I did 10 sets of 20 squats with 100 kilos. <laughs> and That went down well. <laughs> by, but by by about set six, I had a bit of an audience. Nobody's seen it. Like, yeah. 
Most people haven't seen me be doing, especially in David Law, he'd do 20 reps with 100 kilos anyway, let alone do 10 sets of 20 reps with 100 kilos in, in you know, proper deep squats as well. Like, And I actually had people sat on benches watching me in the end and, and like chatting and saying, what are you doing? Like when we walked in, you were squatting and I want to leave now because I've finished my workout and you're still squatting. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, and you're like, what else are you going to do today? I'm like, I don't really, really don't need to do anything else because I've just done one hell of a lot of squats. So, and I didn't realise, that's when I first realised, actually, what I was doing was a bit different, I think. So, I think it begs the question, just for people listening that perhaps don't know you, is what is your training? What does it look like? And what is your reason for training? Um, those are two big questions, aren't they? Um, <laughs> I'll start with the reason for training. I started, I started training when I was eight years old and I haven't stopped. And, and that's it. That, that is pretty much my reason for training. Um, it's like cleaning my teeth. I'm going to do it. So that's, that's how I view it. It's just, it probably, you know, it is probably now wrapped up in my identity and my ego to some degree. You know, people know me for what I do um, so you know it's all it's all wrapped in, up in in identity and ego and everything else which is probably why I continue the way I do to some degree I mean that's got to be part of the answer I'm sure um, but yeah so the first exercise I ever did was pull-ups which probably answers the question about my pull-ups <laughs> I was eight years old, I, put, I lived on a farm, I put a one-inch water pipe across the rafters in the barn, tied it on, and every time I walked under it to feed the calves, I um, did pull-ups. So, you know, when people say, how do I get good at pull-ups, I'm like, well, I've been doing 45 years, so I ought to be good at pull-ups. You know, if you're not good at something after 45 years, you probably ought to try something else. <laughs> Too right. But yeah, so, I mean, that's my why, really. And obviously, I joined the Royal Marines. The Royal Marines was very physical, um, there's a lot of store and uh, kudos wrapped up in those, even within the raw means that were the fittest, and I was. Um, I, I was always in the top echelon of, of the fittest people in wherever I, wherever I served within the raw means. And, you know, that's a Goggins thing, isn't it? Being, is it being unusual amongst the unusual? And, and I, and I kind of was, really. You know, um, and certainly later on in my career, the last few years of my career, I was I was I spent a bit of time out in Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean, and uh, you know that's that's an incredible place to serve. But I did become pretty much a functioning alcoholic, as 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 a lot of raw means actually are. And um, but even so, I was doing just under 18 on the bleep test and then literally walking straight out from doing the bleep test and doing 35, 40 pull-ups. I would no rest, straight from the bleep test, straight to pull-ups. And that, we would do that once a week. And the reason we did that once a week was that our commanding officer hoped that would stop us drinking so much. Um, it didn't. Um, it was a good try by our commanding officer. But, you know, I was 25 years old. I could get away with all that sort of stuff back then. But I was super fit back then. I did a, I did the uh, three miler in uh, 16 minutes. So, you know, I was a good runner. I was lighter than I am now and obviously half the age. 
so fitness has always been a big part of my life um and in diego as well I did ultra like diego garcia is like a giant horseshoe with a big lagoon in the middle very just uh, strategically important island that's where if we're going to bomb the middle east that's where they bomb it from um but, but the tip to tip of the horseshoe was 37 miles i did that one night and we, we broke the records me and my friend jack did it on a whim really having worked as bouncers in the brick club there that at midnight we started the run and finished it at seven in the morning up in the jungle and had to swim out to a rib to get picked up so yeah just doing those sort of things like lots of physical stupid stupid things um that we didn't actually have to do it's stuff we chose to do you know outside our normal raw marine training or raw marine job and yeah it just it's just always been part of my life it's always something that's fascinated me um, I love watching some of the people I see doing crazy stuff that I can't do. I always celebrate people that can do incredible stuff that I can't do. And um, yeah, I just, I'm just fascinated by the whole thing. I love uh, the mindset of it has, has interested me more than ever over the last 10 years. Can I ask, can I go back to the eight-year-old? Yeah. What made the eight-year-old do pull-ups? What had you seen that had gone... There was a couple of things. There was, um, although pull-ups weren't part of it, Superstars. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you remember Superstars in the 70s. We're, we're, we're old enough to remember that. You can. So, like, Brian Jacks. you remember Brian Jacks? Yeah, with, yeah, with, with his dips. dips. With all his dips, yeah. yeah. hundred dips straight off, and then all he survived on was oranges, I seem to remember. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Just that sort of... So, Superstars, I used to love watching Superstars, just seeing these these sporting icons from different sports competing against each other. Like, what a fantastic idea. Almost a bit like the UFC, where they put all the different, at the beginning of the UFC anyway, when they put all the different martial arts together to see who's the best, and then they all moulded into one, really. But, like, Superstars was great, and I saw Pumping Iron quite early. And I just there was one pivotal thing, like, but I can't exactly remember where it's from. It was either Lou Frigno or another bodybuilder from that era who you may have heard of, may not, never quite made the top echelon, but was always in the magazines because he was quite a good-looking guy with a good physique. Dennis Torino. It was either him, and he did some acting as well. So, like... It was a scene. I don't know what the... It was either a movie or a series. And I don't think it was the Hulk. I'm fairly sure it wasn't the Hulk. Because he didn't... He was already... Um, it was It was basically either Dennis Trino or Lou Frigno. Not Green, so it wasn't the Hulk. But having... He was a good guy. And he had two baddies holding his... Um, one, one each arm. While somebody else punched him in the stomach. And he had his top off. So you could see how muscular he was. I remember my stepdad saying, well, that's pointless. They're never going to hurt him. And that, to me, just went, right, I am going to get as big and strong and muscular as I can, and then nobody can hurt me. And that's that's what it was. It was one comment from one TV clip that kind of changed everything. And I just put um, the bar up, started doing pull-ups, started doing loads of stuff after that. But yeah, that was probably the one thing. Because right? I was small as a kid, although I was a tough kid, and I never got bullied, to be fair, but I was I was small as a kid, and that particular thing resonated. 
Like, they'll never hurt him. He's too muscular. And I was like, right, cool. That's what I'll do then. And it, yeah, it became a bit of a lifelong plan, I guess. I don't know. So that then, I love that, by the way. Yeah. Um, that then comes into current times and mm. what went from pull-ups to your training now? And what is your training style now? Uh, yeah, like you say, I've never actually pigeonholed it. I mean, I call it old school style of training is because you know I don't use a lot of kit I don't use machines and and you know I'm generally in my garden outside in my garden so it's as as you can get but yeah so maybe style is the wrong word maybe best best is is what you do what does your what does a two week look like it's probably easier if I describe my ethos and then anything that follows from that will kind of make sense so Obviously, the two professions I've had, the Royal Marines and the police, are very confrontational. Very, very confrontational. I've had hundreds of violent confrontations in my life. Hundreds. And I've been a bouncer as well uh, a couple of times. So I've had hundreds of confrontations. And I always think it's really important to be able to go from naught to 100. So naught being chatting away to 100 where you give 100% you put as much power down as you can as quickly as you can to win that situation Uh, the only way to win a violent situation is to get escalate the violence and then dominate that scenario and so quite often the best way to do that is if you if you go into a violent situation low so you're not if they're shouting you're not shouting you go in you try and calm them down and then you take it from there. That's when you would attack, when you're, talk, when you're talking, trying to calm them down. Because at some point you would have made this decision that this guy's going down. And when you do, you need to pick your moment. And when you, when you choose that moment, you go in and you go in 100%. So what I would say is that everything I do gym-wise, whether it's here or actually in a gym, prepares me for everyday life. Prepares me for all situations. So you'll never see me do a leg extension because there's no time in my life I will sit down with a weight on the end of my foot <laughs> trying to straighten my leg. That doesn't happen in real life, so I'm not going to do it in my training. What you do is pick heavy things off the floor. You put heavy things above your head. You push people away. Like One of the best self-defense techniques is to put your hands here. Boom. Especially if, if, like, in a a fight situation, especially if the person's untrained, but they're just gobby and pissed or whatever, if their feet are square onto you, that is the best thing you're going to do. That, boom. Because they are going to go so far. And that just creates a gap where, if you wish, you can get away. Or they're going to be on the floor so you can get on top and do whatever you're going to do if that's your wish. I would rather go the other way. I think that's sensible these days. But it will give you that gap, that safety gap. And if they're square onto you, that's like heaven for me. If somebody stands in front of me with their feet square, happy days, they're going for a ride, you know. Um, So, yeah, my my training prepares me for those situations that I've actually been in. And I'll control the weight, but when I try and move the weight, I try and move that weight as fast as it will go. And sometimes if I'm deadlifting 500 pounds, that is not going to fly off the floor because it's 500 pounds but I'm trying to make it fall off the floor. So I'm putting as much power down as I can, as quickly as I can. And yes, I don't find myself in those situations these days because I'm not in those professions anymore. 
but you never know. Yeah. You know, these people that end up on London Bridge in a terror situation or anything like that. You know, if, if the car is coming towards me and my son and we're walking down the pavement, I'm not going to do anything slowly. You know, if, if I'm walking around at night time with my friend having been out for a, a meal or something, somebody decides to take, you know, try and take me on. I'm not going to respond to that slowly. Like, it's all about putting power down very, very quickly. And that's what my training is. And all my training, if I don't, like, like tricep press down, you know, when do you do that in real life? Why? I just think, honestly, I just, it frustrates me because I just see people wasting their time. Um, I really do because I don't think it's, firstly, that exercise is pretty pointless when you can do press-ups or dips far more um, they're going to get far more out of it than, than ever doing a cable press down. Um, but also, it's not preparing them for anything. So that is my ethos. My ethos is, well, my bio on my um, Instagram is make yourself harder to kill. Yeah, damn right. Because I have to protect my son. I have to protect my friends. Yeah, you know? and um, that's, that's what I, I, I thought of. Um, it, it, it's the film, um, is, is it Zombieland, the film? Whereas the it's the fast die last, but the stronger harder to kill. Is that yeah. that's the term from that film? Is it? Is that what yeah, I, th- I think that's where it's from. I might yeah. have just made that up. Um, or correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. Um, great. Have you not seen Zombieland? You you need to watch and yeah. and part two. Great films. I have to watch it now. Yeah, great films. So yeah, that's kind of my ethos. So like, you know, I train every day. I do something every day, um, which again, you know, goes against the current. I really think there's so much emphasis. There's never been more emphasis on recovery and stuff than now in the fitness industry. I think it's just swung way too far the other way. People are like hardly training saying their CNS is fried. I'm like, you're not training hard enough to get anywhere near your central nervous system. <laughs> like, like you really don't understand. And also... why wouldn't you try and condition your body so it can do more yeah I mean the farmer works every day yeah absolutely absolutely yeah I mean I was raised on a farm I know that's the case you know I was throwing bales of hay around every single day you know and carrying bags of feed and everything else every single day walking miles to get the cows in for milking every single day didn't have rest days he just had a work capacity yeah, so I so I'm, I'm going to give an example, which is going to um, sort of address two things that have been mentioned there. So last week, um, I didn't train. Let's say I'm using training inverted commas. I was active. I was out and about. I was walking. I was playing with the kids. I was doing stuff. Um, so Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I, I didn't. I'm not saying I didn't have a chance because if 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 I wanted to have a chance to to actually train with weights and stuff, I would have but I chose not to because I was doing other things. So Saturday I trained and it was, I'm not, we always say it's CrossFit. It's, it's not CrossFit. It's just a workout, maybe a functional fitness type workout, which may be construed as CrossFit. Mm. Um, Paul, Paul knows what I'm talking about, um, which was um, 400 meter runs and overhead push press with a barbell. It's hard. It, yeah, well, it was it was hard. I was I was dead afterwards. But even now, today, and this was Saturday, and it's Wednesday now because I didn't train for three days. 
my triceps from the mm. push presses, like mm. not my upper tricep, but the lower, like kind of just mm. above the elbow, they're still sore. They're still, I can still feel them because I didn't train for three days. Yeah. And that illustrates, and I never get DOMS because mm. I train most days. Mm. But that also shows that I've really worked my triceps by never doing an isolated tricep exercise. Yeah, yeah. And I've got DOMS because I didn't train for a number of days. I mean, overhead press is one of the best tricep exercises you're ever doing. Tell me about it. Yeah, I mean, as you found out. But, you know, who was I listening to? Somebody very credible, um, Stan Effetry. Um and he was saying that you need to rest because you need your body to not only compensate for the work you've done, but to super compensate so you grow. <clears throat> I've never really thought about growing. I've never, that's never been my thing. Like, and I actually may be bigger if I actually took rest days. I don't know. Mine's always, I've always been performance-based. And like I always say, my, you know, I'm not, I don't class myself as a bodybuilder. I know what I look like, but I don't class myself as a bodybuilder. Because a bodybuilder, their physique is the aim of their training. Nothing wrong with that, but that's their aim of their training. Yeah. My, my physique is a, as a result of my training. Completely different. Completely different mindset. I never go in thinking I need bigger arms or bigger chest. I go, I need to do more work. I need to do more pull-ups. I need to, do, I need to press heavier. That's my mindset. It's never been about growing. And yes, I might be bigger if I allowed the rest and the super compensation that allows muscle growth and stuff. But I don't want to be any bigger, to be honest. I'm, I'm pretty big and I stand out as it is because I'm not the tallest guy. You know, I'm five seven, so you know I, I carry a lot of muscle in my frame. Um, but I've got a huge work capacity that I've never had any be matched yet. So, yeah, I think that, that's. I've always been about work capacity and performance. Not, you know, how I train every day may not be optimal for hypertrophy. May not, probably isn't actually. But I don't care because that's not what I'm doing it for. Yeah. I'm doing it to get my work capacity constantly high so I can adapt to anything. But I suppose. I'm assuming you can understand why people think that isn't the case because of the way you look. Yeah. Yeah. But you don't see me doing like side laterals to cap my delts or <laughs> anything like that, do you? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I don't train like a bodybuilder. I just happen to look a bit like somebody who could be a bodybuilder. Mm. But I don't do anything particularly bodybuilding. Like, I just do a lot of work a lot of you know, and that's my thing you know and it, yeah I, I don't know my, I've never I have I have competed in bodybuilding I competed in bodybuilding in 1996 that was the last time and I did really well I won the Wales qualifier which is a qualifier for the Great Britain and I came third in Great Britain that year as a novice as a novice bodybuilder but I hated it it's not my bag. It is not. It's subjective. I hate anything that's subjective. So the guy that beat me, a very good guy, nice guy, friend of mine, didn't have my legs, didn't have my proportions at all. But he was huge upper body. He was actually slightly shorter than me. He was about five four, but his upper body was insane. But his lower body wasn't. And like, 
I was more Frank Zane. I, I, I had really, really good body proportions. And um, that's not what the judges wanted that day. It was a freak show next to me. So, like, you know, you can diet for 16, 19 weeks and then based on somebody else's how they feel that day. Mm. So, I, I think subjective sports are very, very difficult because you can work so, so hard and just, you know, as a female, the judges might prefer blondes that day. Mm. And you're a brunette and you've worked really, really hard and there's nothing you can do about that. <laughs> it's a, it, it might even be an unconscious bias. You know, the judges may not ever think to themselves that they're biased in that way. It could be an unconscious bias, but whatever, what, it's still subjective at the end of the day. Uh, yeah, I, I walked away from bodybuilding in like 1996. <laughs> I did it once. It was a good thing to do. It was a good experience to get on stage and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But it isn't me at all. Like, not, not me at all. I like my takeaways and I like my wine and I'm, I'm never going to diet for 19 weeks for a plastic trophy in a tub of protein bowl. It's just not going to be... Yeah. Based on the score that somebody has yeah. adjudicated to give you. I've always had a slight issue with those, but let's, let's so probably the major one is gymnastics. Mm. It's, it's based on, it's based on someone's opinion on that given day. Yeah. Which is brutal. If you work so hard. Exactly. Yeah. Really, really brutal. Yeah. I my bodybuilders. I think, you know, what they put themselves through bodybuilding is a 24 hour a day sport. You know, everything they put in their mouth, everything they drink, it's got a cost, you know, and um, I have nothing but admiration for them, but it's just not for me. It's not my vibe. It doesn't play my day at all, you know. And I think modern bodybuilding, you know, the IFBB stuff is, I just find it, I just don't think it's a good look. I don't like how the sport's gone. You know, when I look back at, yeah, what are they called? Well, there's two golden eras now, isn't there? They call the 70s the golden era and they call the 90s the golden era. But I think the 70s for me uh, was was far more desirable as a look. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And so many are dying as well. Like, it's crazy. Like, um, I don't know. It's, just, it's not really something I would ever want my son to aspire to do. Yeah. I'll just throw in, I have no interest in that or any knowledge of it. No. Bodybuilding. It's, it's, it doesn't, it hasn't crossed my no. consciousness. No, I mean, I like Chris Bumstead. His interview with Chris Williamson was very good. I think he's quite a credible guy. He's, he's, he's the classic bodybuilding champ at Olympia. It's the more of the 70s style rather than the big freak shows, but I mean, he's still a massive guy, don't get me wrong. He's still a big guy. Still weighs about 150. He weighs about the same as Arnie did at the uh, pinnacle of his career. Can I, can I make a, um, a confession here? Yeah. As, as we are a health and fitness podcast, mm. apparently. Um, <laughs> until I seen Chris's post on Twitter about his episode with Chris Bumstead, yeah. Chris Williamson's post, I'd never yeah. heard of him. Never heard of him. Yeah, I mean, it's very niche, isn't it? It is. It's a niche thing, isn't it? It is. It's not like football or something. It's a very niche thing. He's probably the most popular bodybuilder since Arnold. I would say, like, in in how people view him, and he seems a really good guy as well. Like, he's very. He's a, he seems a very decent 
very decent guy. So I think that's why people like him, you know, and um, he's had some health issues as well. He's got congenital um, uh, autoimmune illnesses, you know, that he has to overcome, which is incredible doing what he's doing. And um, yeah, but it's not my, it's not my thing. Yeah. I will listen to him because I think you can learn from everybody. I think, you know, you can take something from most people, you know, so I will listen because I, I listen to Chris Williamson anyway, and it just happened to be in, came on my list. So, but it was a good listen. There is um, a guy called Tom Haviland, yeah, who is an absolute beast in terms of what he can do. Mm. You just see the size of the guy. I think he's. And this is probably where I get it completely wrong. It's in his high sort of six, seven, six, eight frame. He's huge. And he's doing, he's working towards a 320 Zerka squat, 320 kilogram Zerka squat. And he is just yeah. massive. And I would imagine physically, you never see him front on. You always see him from behind yeah. with a shirt on and oh, work trousers. Yeah, I've seen this guy. Yeah. Yeah. And, I would imagine, actually, if he was to stand on stage mm. and stand next to these guys, he would look not out of place. He wouldn't be refined in terms of a bodybuilding mm. style, but actually his physique is all go. It's it's not for show. It's all about its capacity to do stuff. Like, yeah. Much like yourself. His work class is huge. You know, he carries heavy weights over distance. and He like, does. Lots of carries. capacity is very, very high. And it's it's heavy stuff on a frequent basis. Yeah. Do you think, do you think that's where proportion is made? By doing the functional side of things and doing things not, not for the isolation, but let's say the, the big... I hate using these terms because they're terms that people um, kind of frown upon these days, but, you know, like the compound lifts or the full body exercises, the mm. things that are help you move in the way that you're designed to move, you know, the squat, the pull-up, do they give you the proportion? Well, I think so. I, I mean, I don't train body parts. I train movement. So uh, there's sort of six, six movement patterns. So push-pull, squat, hinge, Load of carry and lunge has been added. These used to be five, but now they've added lunge as well, so there's six. Um, and I think, it, you know, we're human beings. So if we, if we go and train body parts, we're going to train our favourite body parts, you know, which is why International Chest Day, you know, you see these lads with big upper bodies and their legs. So they like training their, their arms and they like training their shoulders and they like training their chest. And they're human. I've got, you know, it is what it is. Like we gravitate towards either stuff we're good at or stuff we enjoy, or sometimes both. We tend to, you know, Dan John, who's a very good writer on strength. I don't know if you know Dan John. We've had Dan He's, on the podcast. Yeah. Oh, you've had Dan on? Yeah. Um, I've got a load of his books here. Um, yeah. You know, he, he says the, the exercises best for you are the ones you're not doing. You know, for those particular top-heavy lads, the exercise they should be doing is squatting. Um, but they're avoiding it, and they're, they're sitting on the leg extension and fanning about on the leg press. But, and they're missing out on a nice testosterone boost from all the squats. Massive, massive, massive yeah, massive. And, and things just like bone density, other things, 
bone density, you know, all that sort of stuff. And yeah, it just it just seems after me. I don't get it. But, but I think, uh, you know, again, it's the difference between bodybuilding and being more performance based. If you're more performance based, you're probably going to train movement patterns. If you're more bodybuilding based, you're probably going to train body parts and fanning about with isolation exercises and all that sort of stuff because you think you're going to carve your muscle or etch your muscle or carve striations in your chest and stuff like that. Half these people haven't got a chest. So, like, I don't know. I think it's a mistake. I don't like the bodybuilding style of training. Because, you know, in my mind, like, muscles work synergistically. They help each other out. The only time you should be doing any isolation work at all is in rehab. If you're rehabbing an injury, then isolation work could be appropriate. But if you're trying to be strong and capable and muscular, then isolation works an absolute mistake. Absolute mistake. Yeah. I've got better arms than most people, and I haven't trained arms for years, like decades. Mm. You know, I do pull-ups. You know, and like if you do six hundred pull-ups a week, you don't have to you don't have to fly around with a cable. Do you know what I mean? Or any other type of curl. Like go, go, I do three hundred pull-ups. That's twenty-seven thousand kilos I've pulled. Twenty-seven thousand kilos. That's a lot. Twenty-seven metric tons. Like you know, I've pulled using my arms. I really don't need to do anything else. That or that week. With that in mind, mm. and you clearly do a lot of volume, and we talked about recovery, you must get a decent amount of sleep and a huge amount of fuel coming in to help maintain that. I sleep really well. Yeah. Yeah, I sleep really well. Not long, but my quality of sleep is good. So I, I sleep, well, depending on Charlie, because he's an early riser, but... Um, probably somewhere between six and seven hours a night but that for me is good i never used to sleep very well at all especially when i had ptsd very very poorly like one one hour if i was lucky and i suppose sorry just to, just to so I, I apologize for for jumping in there but i, I think it's an important point bearing in mind your history in terms mm. of um the marines and the police mm. you probably have never had <laughs> a consistent structure of going to sleep at the same time every night no. because of that no and i definitely started to feel certainly feel better and when i when i left the, the police you know because i was working shifts and working shifts is just like being jet lagged all the time mm. um and certainly in, in men over 40 if you're working nights your testosterone is through the floor um really like in america <laughs> you don't have to work nights over the age of 40 for that very reason because the, the link to early death and night work is, is very clear um, you have to accept that you get paid less because you're not working the full range of shifts but a lot of people do accept they will get paid less because they don't have to work nights over and here yeah, and they'll not die early <laughs> yeah um, but over here we still have to work nights um, and stuff no matter how old you are Uh yeah, so like when I left, I started to, I was still not particularly well from PTSD when I first left, but within a year or so, started to, I'd go to bed at the same time, wake up at the same time. I wasn't working as such, so I was home a lot so I could cook. 
you know, I wasn't eating on the go, I wasn't eating, I wasn't preparing meals and eating them cold because I was in the police and I, I spent eight hours at a murder scene and not eating, you know, and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, just, just very much got into a really good way of uh, sleeping, eating, you know, cooking for myself, you know, and not relying on powders and and meal prepping cold stuff and stuff. I could eat stuff fresh, which probably makes you want to eat slightly more and better quality because I'm cooking it from scratch for myself. Um, yeah, I mean, an optim- optimising my lifestyle compared to what it was, really. If I, was reti- you know, I was effectively retired at the age of 47 and I could start to concentrate on rebuilding myself from mental health, really serious, serious mental health. It nearly killed me. Um, rebuilding myself mentally, emotionally and physically and that's what I've concentrated on the last six years. So, touching on that and your mental health, mm. how... So there's lots of stuff, especially during COVID, people saying, oh, I need a gym for my mental health. And we've talked about other things, this in the past, and actually the gym can be a nice tonic to try and manage symptoms, but it doesn't necessarily actually resolve the issue that causes it. And on your LinkedIn profile, it says you were medically retired due to 17.5% disability. Yeah. It's an interesting. Um, I've no idea. No, <laughs> it's a brilliant stat. It was like that, wasn't it? Like, what number should we pick? Was like, so, I guess. I guess my question is: during that time, did you still continue the gym? Did you still continue to exercise, or actually was everything just so blurred and essentially you're running around with your head on fire for a better description? and couldn't fixate or do anything on that? Or was it a crutch to stand on whilst you were dealing with other things? Yeah, I mean, if you look at photos of me when I'm ill, um, I look emaciated, I look like a prisoner of war from Japanese camp um, from the Second World War. That's what I look like. I look like a POW. Um, yeah, I wasn't sleeping because I was having so many flashbacks at night that I didn't want to sleep. Mm-hmm. I didn't sleep. So what I would do is um, there's a big hill near here called Butser Hill. I'd go, I'd drive to Butser at one in the morning, midnight, one in the morning, and I'd run Butser all night. And then it's about five o'clock, I'd go home, have some breakfast, and then I'd run to work. And then any other downtime, I'd be training. I mean, my, my psychiatrist said that I turned... Um, a healthy pursuit into a very unhealthy pursuit and they yeah. so it was a form of self-harm what I was doing was a form of self-harm no, you know yeah I wasn't cutting myself or taking drugs or drinking I didn't drink at all back then because um, I knew if I did I'd kill myself um, I was self-aware but, I know that yeah but you were burning yourself at both ends. I, I was an absolute mess. I looked awful. I look, yeah. I look at pictures now. I've ruined so many young pictures of a child when he's a baby because I'm in them. I look awful. I look absolutely awful. But it's also a testament that you can look back and say, look awful. 
or I now look fit and well now. But I think it's important to say that it wasn't the exercise that helped you resolve the issues. You're obviously seeing a psychiatrist and you had yeah. to work through that that PTSD process and process the events that happened to allow you then to come out the other end. Yeah, I mean, yeah, in February 2017, I was hospitalised. I went to the Priory as a voluntary patient because I was acutely suicidal. Um, and from there, I was in there for about a week and then I was released and I had to go back um, every week for like group counselling and individual something called, um, what was it, eye movement desensitization and reprogramming. EMDR. EMDR, yeah. Yeah, which didn't work for me at all, and, and counselling didn't work for me either, because um, I'm fairly stubborn and fairly bloody-minded, unfortunately. Um, I'm fairly arrogant to think that I could cope with it myself. <laughs> and um, I just remember about, I've been going back to, on a weekly basis for about six to eight weeks to trial. Same people in the group, you know, same faces, same people, same problems. And uh, I made a very conscious decision. And I just, it, I was just sat there just looking at these people. You know, no judgment on them. There was, every week we went back, they were just picking the scab and nobody was offering these poor people any solution. You know, we're going around the room saying, how was your week? And the, all the same problems were coming up. You know, it was awful. And um, I just remember sitting there thinking, well, two things. One is how far have I fallen? You know, can I fall any farther from, from where I am now? You know. And also the second thought was the, the dominant, dominant thought, luckily, was this is not going to be my fucking life. And I walked out of there. I, I left I left the counselling. I never went back. And from then on, I just, it sounds flippant. And I don't want it to because it wasn't. I had to make a very, very conscious decision that that was not going to be part of my life. And I had to take control of myself and my mind, which wasn't easy. And um, I brought myself back. Took a long time. Did you install tools to help you manage it? And is there is there that not the fear, but the corner of the room that's sometimes just a little bit darker that you just kind of have to keep pushing back into the corner so it doesn't come into the fullness of the room? I don't know, to be honest. I don't, I don't, I wish I had the blueprint of how I got myself back. Um, I don't know. It was a day on day thing, you know, that when I look back now, I've got no real answer to that. I just tried to get slightly better every day. Like, we school, I'm out better every day, you know, and it was that. It was, yeah, I don't know. I, after I made that very conscious decision that PTSD and counselling and being part of this group and doing all that wasn't going to be part of my life, I just incrementally got better. But it was, I mean, painfully so. I mean, I don't think I was properly well. I moved into this house in August 21. 
and after a busy few days of moving everything in and like I sat on the sofa and I, that was the first time I thought I'm back I'm back I'm well I'm good and again I, I don't want to sound flippant here but the fact that the counselling and the, the, that that thing that you didn't want to be a part of mm. helped you get through it in a way kind of mm. made that work yeah, I mean, yeah. If you look it's at it, a strange way to look at it. Yeah, but it's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, I mean, it was part of my journey and it was part of my recovery. You know that I saw what was on offer and I saw my future in that room. No, <laughs> and I didn't want it, and I really, really didn't want it. You know, and I suppose, yeah. I mean, if you look at it that way, that's a really good way of looking at it. It was part of my journey. I can't discount that being very important it, it wasn't it didn't work on me the way it was designed to work on me but it worked on me in a fashion that allowed me to then get better for sure and i think it's important to, to say that you know everybody's situation is very very different and what yeah. works for one may work for 10 other people but it may not work for anybody else and yeah, i'm always careful whenever i've talked about this is like this is not the way to do it this is how i did it and it was the only way that I could manage it at the time. You know, I wouldn't encourage, if people are in counselling, I would rather they stay in counselling, you know, um, especially if they feel benefit from it. Um, and I'm always very careful. I try and caveat it. Like, this is not this is not what I want people to follow. This just happened to work for me. And, you know, and I can't make it up. This is what happened. You know, I, I wish I could say that I went through counselling and, you know, this worked and that worked and then I came off antidepressants and I felt okay again and, you know, I wish I could do the, the accepted blueprint, but I didn't do it, you know, so I can only be honest about what I did and I, I was just, that was it, that was my turning point. And I think at that point I had hit, you know, people say you've got to hit rock bottom. That was my rock bottom there, like in a mental hospital in Southampton, you know, just, that was my rock bottom. And, like mental health is, is such a, I'm a better person for what I've been through, no doubt. I, I wasn't actually a very nice person a few years ago before all this. Um, it's, it's made me more empathetic, it's more, more sympathetic, I, I have a better understanding of, of all sorts of stuff. Because what that does, I mean that first night when I, when I went down there for the very first night, they assessed me as a high risk of suicide and I was put in effectively a cell, which, being a police officer for 21 years, I know what that's about. And I've been a custody sergeant, so I also know what that's about. Where I used to set, tell my jailers to take people's belts off and their shoelaces off and anything they could hurt them. No ligature, no ligature yeah, areas. No ligature points. And that happened to me, you know, and that's very humbling. And then I'm put in this cell, and it was a cell. I had a metal toilet, no sink. There was no ligature points. I know exactly what I'm looking at because I've been in the job so long. Um, and they woke, I was on 15 minute rouse, rouse and speak. They woke me every 15 minutes, which was horrific. Not that I could sleep anyway, but every 15 minutes they shone a torch in my eyes that first night. And I remember I just stood, I stood in the middle of the cell at about two in the morning. I assume it was about two. They took the watch off me. About two in the morning. And um, just thinking, how the fuck have I ended up here? How? What on earth? 
you know, I was a Royal Marine, I was a police officer, I was, you know, very well respected. I've had two really good careers. What am I doing? What am I doing here? Like, it's so humbling. Like, any ego I had was gone. Any perception that I was tough was gone. Any perception that I could handle anything was gone. It, I felt it's interesting, like it I felt like the worst. I was so embarrassed. And because, ashamed. Completely ashamed. I think you just talked about two very prestigious careers, but they are two careers that are um, continuously put in high-pressure situations where you see abnormal things for the general public. And your brain has to process that at some point, and that sometimes that's just by putting it in a box and it, it comes out like a jack-in-a-box later in life or it's there swimming around. So actually, there's part of me that's like, I'm not surprised you ended up there given everything that you had been through. Does that does that make sense? And that's yeah, I, th- I think so now. Like, looking back, you know, I can be a little bit kinder to myself than I was maybe back then. Yeah, uh, definitely. But yeah, I mean, they, they say the average person sees four to six um, traumatic incidents in their life or has experience of police officer will see somewhere between four and six hundred and probably the same for the you know A&E and other emergency services too you know you're you're, you're, you just aren't programmed to deal with that volume of carnage and it is you know I would never tell you the worst thing I've ever seen because it's just so horrific you wouldn't sleep for a week I mean and I can imagine the you groups know, of people you were with, yeah, and I would imagine the groups of people you were with, you didn't then go back and talk about your feelings and how you felt about something. You cracked on to the next thing. No, and, and I, I was I was um, a product of my own ego as well back then. I was kind of you know coming out of the Marines to join the police. People looked at you a certain way, and if there was a fight, there was a high expectation that I would be in there. For- <laughs> If, if there was a door to go through and you didn't know what was on the other side, I'm going through that door first. And I did, because I'm a natural leader. I'm going to do that anyway. Um, but also, there was a certain amount of expectation on me, which I lived up to. I enjoyed it. Mm. You know, and um, so I was a bit of a... I became a bit of a product of this sort of self-manufactured identity. But I lived up to it. I was the tough guy. Like, nothing bothered me. Nothing bothered me, you know. And I, I, you know, I was a sergeant for 15 years and I was an inspector as well. And I organised counselling for some of my staff for some of the jobs I went to. I just went home, I went to sleep, you know. But unfortunately, with all these things, you can't unsee things, you can't unhear things, and you can't unsmell things, and you can't undo things. But everything I've ever seen, everything I've ever heard, everything I've ever smelled is in my head. Yeah. Yeah, and certain ones are indelibly on my brain, and they will never go. They're always there. All, all you do with PTSD is learn how to manage it and avoid your triggers. And you know where you can, you can't avoid everything. And, you, and when you are triggered unexpectedly, you have to know how to deal with that, which I do. And I've just become very good at managing it, but um, it took a long time. And you never heal from PTSD because it doesn't go anywhere. It's still, it's all within there. If I give that a bit of a shake, something might come out. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not good. Yeah. 
No, and it's just about trying to process it all, isn't it? You can't process it. That's the thing, like, that's what that's some of the struggle that I had with counselling is that some of the things were so horrific that there's no way you could ever process them. There isn't. There's no, there's absolutely no way. We're talking pure evil things, you know, done to innocent people. And, and, there's no, there's no amount of talking with a counsellor is ever going to change what happened. They are evil, and I don't want to be able to process those things actually because what there's no way of making those things any better in my head. because they are pure evil acts. They are horrific. So that's why I struggled with counselling. I was like, we could sit here all day, and it's not going to make any difference to me about those things because they are so abhorrent. So, uh, what, what are we going to do with them? Like, I've just got to put them in a box and try and keep that lid on, and that's what I'm going to do. You know, and I think I've got very good at that. You know, and I do struggle sometimes when I get, you know, like I just said to you then, like, I would never tell you the worst thing I've ever seen. Well, my brain's already gone to the worst thing I've ever seen. I don't have to tell you what it is, but I know what it is. And even even just saying that phrase, where's my brain gone? Do you know what I mean? There's an image in my head, you know, and I have to manage that, and I can. But, you know, when I spoke, I spoke recently for Hampshire Police to their wellness champions. I was invited down as their keynote speaker to talk about PTSD, like 150 wellness champions. And I triggered myself a couple of times when I was talking. And you can't help it. You know, I bring myself back. I don't go to pieces. That I know, you know, <laughs> and a couple of times I had to take a pause because I had triggered myself and I had to bring myself back into the room, you know, I had to ground myself to stop that actually escalating into a flashback of any any significance, you know. So that's why I say, you, you, you know, you just have to manage it. And I think I'm good at managing it and I can help others manage it by telling them what I do. But it's hard, you know, and, you know, yeah. I think that I think that's a key point, <clears throat> and it's not <laughs> you manage you manage you, and you will do that on a day to day basis. Mm. And I think, as as we discussed via email yesterday, I think um, it's important to talk about it so other people can hear. And in yeah. reference to what we talked about like earlier on, in terms of what people see online and what people people perceive it's important to understand the journey and understand what Mm. actually is going on because everything and I know Paul Paul asked about the age of people and I'm sorry Paul correct me if I'm wrong you were maybe assuming that it was like young younger younger men who were trying to get jacked who were trying to look look like Simon and trying to be as muscular because that's kind of an online thing at the moment. Mm. But you don't get, you, you don't just get there. <laughs> you kind of have to live a life yeah. before you get there. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, there's, there's far more to me than lifting weights. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's, I've had a bit of a life. Exactly, yeah. And, um, I've discovered a lot of stuff, especially in the last 10 years. It's been, you know, I sent you via email about my brother killed himself in 2014. 
And, you know, and that's probably what started to properly... I was already ill, there's no question. I had my first flashback in 2010. Um, so I was already ill. But that undoubtedly sped the process up of me getting seriously ill. Yeah. You know, it's just one of those... It's, it's very, very difficult to process. I know you've had a similar experience. And... You know, it's a very hard thing to deal with. You're always going to be left with questions that you're never going to get an answer to. And, yeah, I think all of the, you know, there's a friend of mine, Knox. He's a ex-Navy PTI, and he's got MS, a progressive MS, and he's in a wheelchair. And he started, like, a little podcast and, and a sort of uh, Instagram page he hasn't really grown, but we will. And um, he's going to over a space camp in his wheelchair. He's done Kilimanjaro in his wheelchair. Um, Sorry, I'm just going to stop you there. What is it? Let's just let's just say what it is, and then let's yeah, so, yeah. So he um, it's it's called the gift of being broken. Okay. And I think there is a gift. You know, when I look back. You know, I've had a lot of trauma in my life, and from a very young age, actually, and um, and there's nothing I would change really, apart from my brother. That's the only thing I would change. Everything else, I think, has made me a better, better person. Like you know, I've always always said I would have liked a slightly easier path to get to where I am. Um, I wouldn't change it. Because I, I thoroughly think I'm a much better human being than I was 10 years ago before I went through all this. And mm. also, you can't. And you can't, no. But if I had a magic wand, I wouldn't use it. Do you know what I mean? It's one of those, because, yeah. you know, I'm better than I was 10 years ago because of what I've been through. So there is, when, when Knox said to me about this gift of being broken, it really resonated with me. Really resonated with me. Um... Because I think there is, I think, you know, but you probably have to be well before you can reflect and know that it is a gift. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Because I always say about injuries, like when you, in, you get injured, you know, I've had nine surgeries, so I've been injured quite a bit. So I always look back on injuries as a gift. It's very difficult to do that when you're injured. But I've always learned the most when I've been injured because I've learned how to train, how to continue training around that injury or... You know, if you never got injured, you wouldn't learn anything. If you could get away with bad form and shitty exercises and everything else and didn't get hurt, like what, if, what have you learned from that? Nothing. You can just do what you want and not get hurt. But if you do get hurt and then you have to train around it and you've had surgeries and you've had to train around that and rehab yourself, then you learn an awful lot about exercise selection and, and your body and how the body works and how you can take um, put pressure on one part of your body and not another and and it's the same really with, with the mental health thing like I learned more over the last 10 years of times where I was literally living life by the minute and it, it got that bad that I wasn't sure I was going to see the next minute um, you know I wasn't living day to day I was living minute by minute for one for a while and um Back on that now is a gift. It's strange that be, but it's probably the only way I can look back on it. Yeah, yeah. I'm not bitter about it. it. It happened, and and I'm better for it. 
Yeah, so we, we spoke we spoke to um, Spencer Whiteley, um, mm. who's actually in America at the moment in the US in Aus- Austin. Is it in Austin? Or? Austin, Texas. Yeah, uh, Madison. Madison. Sorry, um, uh, Madison at the CrossFit Games at the moment. Yes. Um, so he, he's he's at the CrossFit Games in the uh, sort of top ten of his age group. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's competing at the moment, and he he he's ex forces, and he said to us when we spoke to him month or so ago um yeah roughly months ago um he said that he's convinced that he would have died due to his injuries um in well, whilst he was serving if he wasn't as fit in his yeah life. yeah and he, he, he i asked him that question outright and he said yes i 100 that saved my life being fit and healthy and strong because he was harder to kill there you go. Uh, yeah, and you know he's missing bits because of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, fuck me, he went through it. Yeah, yeah I've heard that a lot. People um, have. Um, oh, there was a guy who was stabbed. I can't remember who it was. Then. But the thing that saved him was he had a lot of pec muscle, so it didn't reach his heart. Short blade. It missed his heart because he had so much muscle. Perhaps there is um, a benefit to International Chess Day on a Monday. <laughs> do you do you in, do you enjoy your sessions, or are they, as you said, just so ingrained, like doing your teeth? It's you do it without even thinking. If that makes sense. God, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I've ever really thought about it. Um, I mean, I love running with my son. Honestly, that is the biggest joy in my life by far. I find it really odd when I get messages saying, aren't you worried about losing a bit of muscle? I'm like, I'm running with my son. I'm building this muscle with my heart. Yeah, who, who was fertility and who I thought I was never going to get. And I'm running with my son. You feel like I'd willingly sacrifice two stoner muscles around with my son. Um, So I find that a bit odd. Um, They're obviously not parents. And uh, sorry, what was the question? Do you enjoy working out or is it just so routine that it's just just part of the day? It might be both. Yeah, it's probably both. I mean... And I very rarely have a, what I would say is a bad session. I don't class any session as a bad session, particularly. You know, there's been, I don't deadlift much anymore because I get obsessive. I may, I know that may surprise you, but I can get really obsessed with stuff. <laughs> the point that it's dangerous for me, you know, and um, I mean, I, I, I wanted last year, I wanted to deadlift 240 kilos on my birthday. And it's so arbitrary. This is how my brain works. My brain is an absolute mess. It's like 240 kilos. I was turning 53 in September last year, and 240 kilos is 530 pounds. So that's why I chose 240 kilos because it's 500. Because of my age, and you may resonate with you as well, although I'm, I'm older than both of you. But like, yeah, uh, you could have made it much easier by just deadlifting 53 pounds. I could have done it. Um, but I work in both. I work in pounds and kilos all the time, right? which is handy actually for my Instagram because obviously a lot of my audience is American. Yeah. I tend to 
yeah. tended to be both. But yeah, so I thought, I determined, what's, what's 530 pounds in kilos, 240, right? Cool, I'll do that. And actually on the warm-up, that day I was going to do it, it was just the day before my birthday. And I... I um, I hurt myself. I hurt. I, I was, was going to do. I did 180 for five, 200 for three, and then I was going to do 220 for one, and then 240 for one. And on the second rep of 200, I hurt my back. Like I couldn't stand up. Couldn't stand up. I, I literally, I was walking around like bent over in the gym. I could not stand up. And so a friend of mine, Mark, who's 60 years old and built like a tank, still squats down to 40 kilos, 60 years old. He came up to me, he goes, right, you're going to have to call it. Like, you can't do it today. Like, you're going to have to go and get your back sorted. I go, yeah, I'm going to do it. So I said, all I'm going to do is not do the 220 because I knew I was absolutely going to trolley my back. So I, I said, I won't do the 220. I just go straight for the 240 and give it everything. And I couldn't even stand up. And I lifted that 240. It was it was ugly, but I lifted that 240 with a back where I couldn't even stand up properly, really. And the moment I put it down, my brain said to me, with a healthy back, you can do 250 or more. Hmm. That was my first, that's my first thought. I, I just lifted 240 with a knackered back. My very first thought, and I swear on Charlie, this was my first thought with a good back. I, could do I can believe that. And it's and a friend of mine said to me a while ago actually he was coaching me. Every time I've been coached, he's a strong man, Thor, local local lad Thor, and he um, young lad but very very bright, very wise. He's only in his twenties, or no, he's maybe just turned thirty, but he's such a nice guy. And it, he said to me, he said, um, "Be happy but never satisfied." Mm. But I can't even be happy. I, I, I go straight to the not satisfied bit, which is a problem. That's not a good way to be. That's not a good way to be. But, but then you say that. That's my mind. It's awful. Like Sometimes I wish... I've had a friend of mine, she's, she's a cancer survivor. She's brilliant. She's in her 70s now. And she said to me once, she said, I'd love to be able to take your brain out, put it back together. I'll take it apart, put it back together how it should be, and <laughs> put it back in your head. Thought, yeah would be helpful it's interesting you say that but when you tell that story and you talk about putting the 240 with the bad back you're smiling about it you're enjoying that moment yeah when you talk about it so i think you probably do enjoy it and you probably are happy about it and then you're also happy because you're going that's the bad back i can pull more than that (laughs) and i don't i don't think there's anything wrong in that at all no, it's and it's one of the reasons I don't compete because um, I could probably do quite well in powerlifting for my age, particularly and, and my weight. But I get so obsessed. My brain is it's not a good place to be. Like when I when I get something in my head. So from uh, you know, I was going to do a bodybuilding contest for my fiftieth birthday. Bear in mind, I hate bodybuilding. I haven't done it for, for many, many years. I just in my head, I thought, right, I'll do it from my fiftieth, just to, you know, as a thing for my fiftieth. I got so obsessed; it was obscene. It was horrible. I was, I was. My partner said to me, um, it, was, "It was a lovely day. We're in her garden, and and she was talking about converting one of her rooms." It was an office into a bedroom for Charlie. So a really nice conversation. I couldn't even be asked to respond. 
I had nothing in me, you know. And she said, we were due to meet my friends for lunch, and um, she, her ultimatum was, if you don't have a burger and chips, we're not, we're, I will finish this today, <laughs> you know. And, yeah, I stopped and had my burger and chips, you know, because I quite like them. Um, yeah, I can get so obsessed, you know. And I remember I was at David Lloyd then, training, and a friend of mine said, oh, my God, you look absolutely knackered. And I was training hard still. And he, he said to me, what would you tell a client? I said, I'd tell a client to take a week off and like, double their calories. He goes, are you going to do that? I go, no, no, I'm not. I'm going to train harder. That's why I don't compete. I haven't got a healthy mind for, for competition at my age. Yeah, and I think that's it's a distinction between competing to be at the top of the sport. I think you need to have that obsessiveness yes. to go there. Um, yeah. But at the same time, your focus is on longevity and living well. Yeah. They kind of butt heads, don't they? And my son and everything like that. Like, I don't want to be grumpy and lacking energy around my son. No. You know? I spend so much time with him. We have such a good time that why would I jeopardise that or any other relationship which, which would go out the window? Like they, they would. You know, because you can't be a slave to two masters. Do you know what I mean? And like, I, I am literally so focused that it, it's unhealthy. It's not a, competition for me is not a healthy pursuit. I know that, which is why I don't do it. Luckily, I'm self aware enough to know that that is not a good thing for anybody around me. So I don't do it. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, a I'm, char- I'm a difficult character. <laughs> not at all. I think I, just, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I disagree. <laughs> I think we all are. I think everyone is in their own way. I think everyone has has their thing. Yeah. They perceive. And I, I, I use the word perceive very sort of deliberately that they perceive as the reason why certain things have happened in their life. Mm. And I, I'm no different. Like I think everyone's the same. Yeah. Yeah. Life's an interesting one. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think luckily with age, I've become more self-aware. So I don't, once upon a time, I would have competed um, to hell with anything else. Now I know what's important in my life, and competition isn't. Training's really important to me. I eat pretty much whatever I want. I socialise. I drink. I have takeaways. You know, I'm pretty good. I'm about eighty twenty, maybe. Um, obviously, I can't. I'm not just eating takeaways all the time. But I'm, you know, if I go to a restaurant, there's nothing I won't eat. You know, I'm never going to say oh, I can't eat that because you know. I want to be in shape. I was like, I'm going to eat that and I will just train hard tomorrow and eat slightly less tomorrow. <laughs> I'm very instinctive. So if I'm going out uh, on a bit of a bender, then I'll eat less the day before. I'll go and enjoy myself and I'll eat less and train. And that's it. That's how I manage my life. So there's no science behind what I do. It's very instinctive. So there's, there's a guy, there's a, there's uh, a guy who's got a, um, a really popular YouTube channel. I think he's got about 3 million um, mm. subscribers on YouTube. Um, the, the, the channel's called Beard Beard Meets Food. 
So basically, he's a he's a competitor here. He's from the northeast of England. He's from Middlesbrough or thereabouts, and uh, he's got a big beard. And he's brilliant. He's really he's really funny, and he's a personal trainer, but he's a competitive eater. Yeah. We try we tried to get him on the podcast before, and he's he doesn't really like talking about the two sides because he's made his name from mm. competitive eating. But if you if you watch his YouTube videos, he'll sometimes drop in how he does it, which is basically he'll eat twenty thousand calories in one sitting in an eating challenge. But then he won't eat for a day. Mm. And then he will reduce his calories for the yeah. next three weeks. Yeah. Before he does his next thing. Yeah, and I think that's fair. Like if if the way like, I fast once a week and because I look at calories over the week, not a day. Yeah. So that's the point. Yeah. yeah. So like if if I'm calorie neutral, as in I'm not gaining weight or losing weight, and I'm I'm pretty much the same weight most of the time. I've lost a little bit because I want to run better. But you know, I could easily sit at ninety and not think about what I'm eating. I would just stay at ninety kilos the whole time and not fuss about what I eat. I know exactly my body knows what I'm eating for what for ninety kilos and it would stay there. Hemostasis, you know, that set point. Um, but with fasting, you know, I look at the calories over a week. So if I'm calorie neutral and I just don't, if I take out one day's eating, that's one seventh. So I've just been a calorie deficit by one seventh. You know, because I was calorie neutral, I wasn't gaining or losing. By taking one day out, I've, I've taken a seventh of my calories out and I'm now in a deficit for the week for the week not the day for the week so what he's doing is obviously on a much grander scale because he's taking in 20,000 calories in one sitting and then he's he's fasted for a day and then he's tapered for three weeks which pretty much accounts for those calories um, and he probably doesn't gain any weight at all no, he's... he probably gain some water weight for the first few days because the sodium and whatever food he's eating yeah but actual body fat, you know, a month later, he's probably exactly the same as he was before he did the competition. So Yeah, he's, he's super fit and fills out his T-shirts with his biceps. Yeah, because he's accounted for those calories. He's accounted for them. Yeah. Like he's, made, he's made adjustments and he's accounted them. So his balance sheet is, is fine. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't recommend anybody eat 20,000 calories. <laughs> no, but that, that was an extreme, extreme example of, of how that works. Yeah, yeah. Think. That's a really good explanation, though, isn't it, about that balance sheet of your calories. Like, what he's doing is, is spot on. Over, but it doesn't work if you look at calories on a daily basis. You have to look at the calories over a period of time, like at least a week, at least a week, I would say. And then in his case, maybe three to four weeks. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and his, his balance book is, is balanced. It's fine. Yeah. But I've seen, when I was in America, I was in Tampa a few years ago and on TV, it was on the 4th of July, I remember, and on one of the TV shows was this uh, eating competition. And none of them were fat. None of them were overweight. Which has really surprised me. Like some of them looked very, very slim. You think, where the hell are they going to put that? Like thirty hot dogs or whatever it was. But yeah, I, I just assume perhaps they brought it up afterwards or something. I don't know. But 
none of them were overweight. In, in fact, the commentators were overweight, but the actual contestants weren't. Because <laughs> it's yeah, it was crazy. I was really surprised. I, I thought, you know, they might look, but they, they you would say they were borderline slim. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and that, as I've just described, that's the reason why. And yeah. I, think, I think there is, sorry, I, I don't want to hijack this on competitive eating because it's not something I'm, <laughs> I'm particularly interested in. It was just when you mentioned that idea of you can do, you can, you can yeah. eat and drink. You just have to yeah. account for it over a period of time yeah but I think there's a certain this is going to sound ridiculous I will just say this there's a certain fitness in being able to just shovel down food oh it's not easy it's not easy like if you're unfit and you're just I can't do it to be able to actually have the discipline the mindset to shovel that down yeah a lot, a lot of bodybuilders, if you ever listen to them, they, they find dieting down for a contest easier than bulking up. Yeah. They're having to force feed themselves, and that's horrible. Right? Yeah. Like, literally, they're gagging on every spoonful of stuff they put in their mouths. I mean, that's just... I've never bulked. I don't believe in bulking and cutting quickly. Like, I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that's good long-term. And also, I've never tried to put on loads of size, so I suppose... That they're in such an extreme surface because they're trying to put on size bodybuilders in the in the off season. But yeah, um, oh, there's a local guy here. Well, he used to be local. He used to be in Southampton, but he's moved up north. I can't remember his name. Quite big locally, and like he in his off season, he is choking his food down. But it's gross. I mean, horrible. I wouldn't want to feel like that. To be honest, where's the fun in that? Yeah, there isn't. But obviously, their goal is to put on size, so they're 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 going to the extremes to get extremely big. You know, you don't get anything because you, your body is in a permanent state of homeostasis, isn't it? It's trying to remain as it is. Just comes back to that midline, yeah. Yeah, you just move your set point sometimes, but you know, to to make your body change, you can't slightly persuade it to change. You kind of have to make it change. Yep. You know. Which is why you know exercise has to be balanced, and even though I was to put on a lot of size, but yeah, it's not for me that sort of thing. Yeah. You can't feel athletic when you're struggling to put your food down. I, I can't imagine anything worse. No. That's an interesting point. Athleticism mm. is very different from just being strong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. You obviously run. You said you run with your son. Yeah. What do you do to stay athletic? I, I really don't, unfortunately. I think, you know, there's so many different strains to, like, fitness and athleticism, uh, agility, mobility. Neither of those are particularly my strong points. Um, and all that sort of stuff, you know, speed. Speed, you know, I was a sprinter, so, you know, my speed's not bad, but still, still not bad. But, yeah, I mean, I'm fairly... I'm probably slightly becoming one-dimensional to becoming two-dimensional. You know, I could do a lot better than I am, for sure. Um, become an all-round athlete. You know, I'm very good at strength and, and strength endurance, particularly, like work capacity. But I've never touched my toes. I can't, without cutting my foot off, I'm never going to. Um 
Yeah, so there's aspects of my fitness that would not tick any box, for sure. That, that's a really interesting point that you just made there. And I, I'm not going to um, sort of draw any conclusions in terms of what's right and wrong, but mm. the idea of touching your toes, to me, is mad that people can't. I've never have. And I, I, I completely get the fact that people can't do that. Mm. But mm. to me, that's mad. Mm. But also, to me, having biceps like, like you is mad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which, yeah. which I can see your vein popping out there. Um, <laughs> I'll just say, um, it, like to me, I, 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 that's not achievable. And that's, it, that's not where I'm going. But I can quite easily touch my toes and always have been able to. And does that not just illustrate the fact that we're all different and we're all we all have different biologies and we all have a different yeah. thing that we're not necessarily trying to do, but a thing that we can do. I mean, there's, there's definitely a thing like specificity. You get good at what you do. And like I had, I had a treatment down in, in um, Hyde the other day with a, with uh, Georgie who, who, who did some work on me and my thoracic spine is very locked up. And you know, and that probably contributes to sort of shoulder mobility issues and various other things. And it's one of those strange things that actually for heavy deadlifts, which is what I concentrated on for a couple of years, you know, I went up to 272.5 kilos, 600 pounds, 3.1 times my body weight at 50 years old. Um, so I was very much concentrated on deadlifting. Having a locked up uh, thoracic spine is really good for deadlifting. I've got no flex in my back, right? it's not moving. So for certain things, it's really good. But for everyday life, like for the other 23 and a half hours when I'm not deadlifting, it's pretty shit, you know, and it makes life quite difficult at times. And I sort of, so there's definitely, you get good at what you do and there's certain things that help you that won't help you in other aspects of fitness or in everyday life, you know. So I don't know, there's a price to pay if you specialise in a certain thing you're probably going to be unbalanced in other areas. And that's what I did for a couple of years was heavily focus on the deadlifts because I enjoy deadlifting. I don't do it much anymore because I get too obsessed. <laughs> um, hence why I ended up doing 240 with a bad back. Because um, yeah, yeah. I said I was going to do it. That's the trouble. I said I was going to do it, so I did it anyway. I couldn't walk away from it, you know, unfortunately. And I should have done. Well, if that was a client, I wouldn't have let him go anywhere near that bar. But... <laughs> Yeah, it's me, so there you go. But, yeah, so you get good at what you do, you know, and slightly similar to, so with PTSD, one of the worst parts of PTSD, just to bring it back slightly to that, is is hypervigilance. Now, like, like with, the, with the, having a locked-up thoracic spine is, is not a bad thing for deadlifting. So it's not bad per se. It's not 100% bad because it's actually quite helpful when you deadlift, but it's sort of like 90% bad. Like it's 10% okay for deadlifting, 90% for your rest of your life is not very good. Hypervigilance in everyday life is exhausting because you never relax. You can't relax. It's impossible for you to relax, okay? You're in fight or flight permanently every minute of every day. It's horrific. And I had that for a very long time. And I know how horrific, how horrific that is. But in certain, in like ten percent of my life, that's kept me alive. Hypervigilance <laughs> kept me alive. So again, it's one of those things that's not great in everyday life. Mm. 
but it's not 100%. You can't just say that is 100% bad because sometimes it isn't. So it's, it's a bit of a weird one in your head. Like, my thoracic isn't... Like, when George was working on my thoracic, I think, I'm thinking, if I go back to deadlift and I want that locked up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't want it loosened off. Yeah. So, but there's definitely... As, as I'm getting older, there's no doubt I've lost movement and mobility and the ability to do everyday tasks a little bit. I think... You know, I've gone, I was 92 kilos in January, I'm 85 now, that's helped. Um, my running's improving. Um, I'm starting to do some actual mobility stuff for my thoracic. Um, so, because I want my shoulder health to be better. So that's probably linked in. So, you know, I am starting to address some of these things, but I am by no way a perfect example of athleticism. Not all round athleticism. I'm very good at the things I'm, but I'm also not very good at the things I'm not good at. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting one going forward. And I do think we tend to tighten up and stiffen up if we're not careful. Okay. Um, and it does make things like putting on your shoes more challenging and things that you yeah. kind of take for granted. Yeah. What do you do to relax? Training. That's, okay. that's my meditation is training really I guess you know many times over the years I've been told I need to meditate or um, is it mindfulness and all this sort of stuff like if I'm about to squat 182 kilos I'm not thinking about anything else I'm very very present mm. very present because if I'm not that's going to break every bone in my body so like I don't know it's, it's, it's a weird thing um, relaxing doesn't come easily to me at all like it's been a problem my entire life like if I'm at an airport I can't sit on a seat and read a book I'm stood up and I'm walking about I, I, on a plane I will, I will stand at the back and chat to the stewards and stewardesses I can't sit and watch a film I, I can watch a film that's fine if, if it's long haul I'll watch a film but I can't go to sleep or anything like that I really struggle to down regulate myself how, how does night sorry one time I just go to sleep I, it's great I, I'm good I, there's a switch for me at night but when I'm awake I don't nap I don't watch TV during the day I just I'm always I'm retired but I don't know how I fit it working honestly I don't know how I fit the full time job in because I'm always busy as a retired man so how, how does like just mm. to sort of further pause question how does chatting to us and having this conversation how how is this to you is is this like chilled is it is it okay is it I'm, I'm, I'm chilled with it and actually I think it's quite good for me because I can like some of your questions have made me examine some of my weaknesses and I don't think that's a bad thing um and some of my flaws and you know some of the other things so I try and be as open, as honest as I can with everybody, but also myself these days, because I haven't always been. I haven't always been at all, right? So this sort of conversation makes me think, and, you know, like when you said about athleticism, like straight away, I know the areas I'm lacking in, and I should do something about it. But I don't, and I haven't, but I should. You know, it's, it's a bad word. But, you know... 
It's good because you're making me think. You know, you're not blowing smoke at my ass. You're asking me probing questions, which is what you should do. <laughs> Finding out what's going on with me. <laughs> and that's who you are. And it's great, actually, because it's good for me. It's good for me to have to think. You know, you ask me whether I enjoyed it or whether I just did it routinely. Never thought about it. So I really I appreciate these questions because it's good for me. There, I enjoyed item I exercise five days a week. It's in my garage. There's no one else around there. I don't have to do it. I choose to do it. And it is routine. The alarm goes off at five. I get up. I don't think about it. And I'm downstairs and I'm in the garage. That being said, there are days I'm out there going, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't yeah. need to do this. I could get away with training three times a week and be fit and healthy. But I always feel better f- for it. But there mm. are times I'm in the middle of something, especially, like I say, you're going for something heavy. Mm. And you're like, oh, do I need? Or if you're going to do some really hard metabolic condition that's mm. a real RPE of, of nine or 10, and you know it's going to hurt. And yeah, you're like, really? yeah. oh, I could just cruise through this. <laughs> There's no one here watching. That voice. I know. And yeah, there are days when I probably do not hit a nine or a ten and I'm probably coasting at a seven or eight they are few and far between but they happen Mm. and so maybe that maybe that was the question I should have asked when I said do you enjoy it you know do you have those days where you're like this is this is more of a struggle it's not just flowing today very much so I I think there's days I can really procrastinate where I fully plan. Like I take Charlie to school and my plan is to train as soon as I get back from the school run. And I might not train till about half past three. So like, <laughs> it's a bit late. Um, <laughs> I can really procrastinate. I can find an awful lot of jobs to do around the house and, and food shopping to do and all sorts of stuff. That bathroom yeah. is like, a proper deep <laughs> It didn't. Yes. It didn't until it did just now, but it does now. And I've ha- I have those days, you know. And I think Goggins talks about it. You know, Goggins says sometimes he stares at his trainers for half an hour before he puts them on. You know, and, and, I, and I th- you know that's just human. Like, like metabolic conditioning, like you just said, is very different. Like, there's different things that you dread, and metcon something is it, probably harder than doing a heavy lift, like mentally. Yeah. Um, it's easier to get up to lift, you know, to do a heavy lift than it is to do like a proper metcon where you, you're absolutely going to go 180 so high. Of vomiting. Yeah. yeah. And like really, really uncomfortable. So there's different ways of getting yourself up for things. And that, that is particularly hard, I think, especially at five in the morning, like fair play. Um, I do enjoy what I do. I do enjoy it. I, I really do enjoy it. I, I I don't I'm quite happy because of I train every day and because of my weekly accumulated volume if one session doesn't go you know I will still do whatever volume I was going to do but I may not feel quite as snappy quite as powerful quite as quite as buzzing for it it doesn't worry me at all because I know that my accumulated volume for the week you know uh, is is sufficient. I'm doing enough work, but having a bit of a one, I never have a session really where I don't do what I plan to do. 
it may just not feel as how as well as I wanted it to go or as easy or as flowy as I wanted it to be. You know, yeah. I didn't feel quite as powerful, quite as snappy, um, quite as strong or whatever. But I will always pretty much 99.9% do what I plan to do. In which case, how I feel doesn't matter to me. That's a perception. That's a whatever. If I've still done the work, then it doesn't really matter how I felt because I've still done the work. Um, And how I feel about it, I'm not too worried about, really. There's definitely days where I can get under the squat bar and my knees don't hurt as much. It's moving well. My, My mobility is on pretty soon. And, um, you know, I'm hitting depth well and it feels great. And there's other days where it can be an absolute twat and hurt and mobility takes a while and nowhere near depth. And yep. I have to have 120 kilos on there just to break parallel and I'm using the weight to help. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and you know, I have those days too, you know. But the important thing is not to worry about those days where it hurts, but celebrate and enjoy the days where it doesn't. Yeah, I love those extra gravity days where you need extra gravity. <laughs> yeah, I need 140 kilos just to break parallel. <laughs> I'm old and my hips are gone. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm going to come back to a question with, that Paul asked quite early on in this conversation that you didn't actually answer. Did I avoid it? Go on. You did, um, which is, and I, know, and I knew you would avoid it because you kind of avoid it in your communications with people online and things is in terms of how you actually train and what you actually do. <laughs> and, and I think yeah. that's the key point. That yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not putting you on the spot with no. answering that because... No. And I do need to answer it. So um, I think what, the reason I struggle with it is, is sometimes I just don't really know what I'm going to do until I wake up and I'll see what hurts and what doesn't. And that was an age thing. So um, I think I said this in a video the other day, I do like a diagnostic when I wake up. You know, like when you turn your key in your car, it does a diagnostic. I do that when I wake up. And I sort of go, right, right, okay, what hurts and what doesn't? And then I'll decide what I'm going to do from there, really. Um, it's loosely based on push-pull legs. Loosely based on push-pull legs. Um what I did a while I can't remember what month it was. It might have been January this year. I did I did three thousand pull ups, so a hundred a day. So no matter what else, if I was squatting, I'd still do a hundred pull ups. So no matter what. And um what I enjoy doing actually, and I I still incorporate it now a little bit, is so I do a set of squats and then ten pull ups. Set of bench, ten pull ups. So it's not purely push pull legs. Sometimes I will chuck in 100 pull-ups as well. So it's, it's quite difficult for me to exactly quantify what I do, which is probably why I struggle slightly to... I'm not that rigid. I'm not that rigid in it. You know, there's days I'll deadlift, when I still do deadlift sometimes, I'll deadlift, so a pull, and then the next day I do 300 pull-ups. The two pull days, which a lot of people won't do. But... I don't think twice about doing that, you know. And so it's a really difficult one for me to answer because I'm very instinctive 
with my training. I really am. A lot of people throw instinctive around, but I truly am. So what I would say is it sounds like volume is a tenant of what you do. You look at high volume of reps when you're doing your session, whether that's a push-pull uh, or legs it, it's that's what your focus is and yeah. you do a high number of volume reps for multiple sets yeah so maybe that's that's also what i was thinking in terms of how do you approach it so you'll do your diagnostic you'll decide what you're going to mm-hmm. focus on but if you're doing bench you'll do multiple sets of 10 15 20 reps yeah i, I like 300 as a number so and um, because i've had a shoulder injury like doing 300 reps with 60 kilos, say, in the incline uh, guillotine press, which is my favourite, um, just seems like a good thing to do because it's not a heavy weight. And I would do that quite often using the EMOM. So I would do 15 reps every two minutes for 40 minutes, and that's 300. Yeah. And, and just things like that, just like accumulating. You know, I love doing EMOM for pull-ups. I'm sure you've seen that. Um yeah, it's just things like that, really. I, 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 it, like if I squat 100 kilos and I like to do a minimum of 100 reps with it, so, that, you know, I like my 100s, I like my 200s, and I like my 300s. And I kind of, you know, my friend Chris, who I'm sort of doing a programme with, will be released in a couple of weeks. Chris Wright, he's got FitLab. I don't know if you've seen FitLab on Instagram, but he's, he's got, he does sort of body transformations. He lives in Dubai. I've known him for years personally over here when he lives here. Um, one day he did, um, he's got some legs on him and he did four sets of 20 with 100 kilos. And I'm like, Chris, why? I do four sets of 20. I wouldn't be able to sleep. I've got to do five sets of 20. I said, if I did four sets of 20, I'd have to get up to in the morning and do another set of 20. Like, there's no way I could do that. I, I admire people and I'm envious of people that can do that because I'm not wired that way. Uh, I would have to do <laughs> so I like I like my round numbers and I like my hundreds and multiples of do you know what was funny there so where my brain went <laughs> was why are you doing sets of 20 with 100 kilos but you were like no do one more set of 20 <laughs> or do four sets of 25 yes I couldn't imagine stopping at 80 reps I see <laughs> I wish, honestly, I, I do sometimes just, I might have to put my light on, um, i do that now, is that okay? Yeah, I'll yeah, go my... for it. Yeah. <sighs> ah, there you go. Um, I was hoping the evening sunlight um, it would be money on, so yeah. Um, yeah, I, was, I sometimes wish I wasn't wired the way I am. It makes life difficult, I've got to say. Because I, I wouldn't be able to do Christy four sets of 20. It would absolutely bug me. And I don't know what that wiring is. It's not healthy. It's not great. <laughs> but it's not much fun. But I would have done another that's set. Part, yeah, <laughs> that's part of your what you've really acknowledged is your obsessive uh, personality. Yeah. Probably part of that. Yeah. I know the chat that programs for us, Paul Warrior, every now and again he throws in a 100 rep set and you have to pick a weight and yeah you can stand with it but you can't re-rack it you know yeah i mean that's brutal that's brutal like even there was a thing going around a few years ago just with the olympic bar doing 100 curls and you yeah. went 
you can put it down. And I did it once, and my biceps had the worst toms I've ever had. Like, you know, 20 kilos for 100 reps. Just horrible. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I, I would say, so, you know, I'm not a big advocate of the HIT style of training. I don't think you have to go to failure. I, I don't. Very rarely do I go to failure. I don't think, and that's possibly why I can train on a daily basis because I'm not hitting my CNS that much because um, I'm not going to those fail. Uh, you know, I'm probably two or three reps short of failure on every set, if not more. Um, but I, I certainly believe, what, you know, I've, I've built a reasonable amount of muscle mass and I firmly believe that one of the reasons for that is one of the main drivers is time under tension. Um, and the way I train puts my muscles hugely under tension for a lot of time. And I think that's one of the main drivers, and I think it's overlooked. People think you've got to go to failure for one or two sets, and that's not much time under tension, very little, in fact. You know, which is why I never think five by five is good for a beginner. Like, I see that prescribed for beginners, and it's 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 a dreadful way for a beginner to to yeah. Because for two reasons, one, hopefully they've got good form and they've been get shown good form. And the best, obviously, repetition is the mother of skill. So if they've got good form, you know, it goes the other way as well. They can get very, very good at bad form if they do a lot of reps. Or if they've got good form, they can get very, very good at good form by doing a lot of reps. Mm. So if I've got a beginner, they're doing a lot of reps. Because I'm looking at their form, and they've got good form, and they're doing a lot of reps, which then ingrains that form. Five sets of five is an advanced protocol. There's very few people that don't aren't advanced lifters that should be doing it, in my opinion. Because if I'm doing five by five in a deadlift, for instance, I'm well over double weight. Mm. Well over. So I can, I can generate sufficient intensity using a sufficient load to make those five reps worthwhile. A beginner can't. A beginner yeah. can't. So, so a protocol should be, you should be erring on the higher rep side, I think, for, for beginners, as long as their form is good. And that's the caveat, as long as their form is good. And also, depending on what your intended outcome is, yes. I would say. So I, I'll give an example. Um, I've been working my 12-year-old son, obviously it's school holidays. We're in the second week of school holidays now. Um, he's been doing sort of two or three afternoon training sessions with me in the garden and, and, and outside. And yeah. yesterday we were doing a one and we, it was shuttle runs and cleans. Mm. And he was doing it with sort of five kilo dumbbells. I was doing it with my barbell. And we were just chatting afterwards, cooling down. And he said, oh, what's the most you can lift on there? And I said, well, I've, actually, I've got, including the bar, which is 20 kilos, I've got 125 kilos worth of sort of weight. That's, that's what I can lift. That's all I can lift because that's all I've got. Mm. And I said, but I can deadlift more than that, so I'll do multiple reps with that which is the same as maybe doing one rep at a really, really high weight, which I don't actually have the weights for. And I said, also, it doesn't really matter 
because as long as you're this this is my personal view as long as i'm doing sufficient reps at a sufficient weight to improve my strength make me tired if it's a metcon type workout mm. then i've done what i need to do yeah it doesn't matter yeah. yeah and the number of reps doesn't matter either yeah the only, the only caveat i just want to mention before, about the five by five is if somebody's doing a skills-based exercise so snatch or clean and press or something that's skills-based i've got no problem with them using those sort of rep ranges because i think it's more appropriate for skills-based stuff but for squatting and deadlifting and that then higher reps yeah, well, I had a powerlifter come to me, a young lad, and he, he could squat and deadlift over 300 kilos. But he was he was on a, like a load of gear and he was overweight. He was about 130 kilos. And he, he was 29 years old and he was struggling to go up the stairs. Um, you know, he said, I'm knackered by the time I get to the top of the stairs. And I said, well, that's probably because you're 130 kilos, but... When, I, when he sent me his, his workout, he was doing something like 6,000 kilos as a total. But some of that was made up with a double with 300. So, but I said to him, I said, doing two reps with 300 kilos, because I wanted to increase his work capacity because he didn't have any, because he couldn't get up the stairs. So I said, if you do two reps with 300 kilos, I mean, that's brilliant. Don't get me wrong. That's amazing as a headline figure, but that's only 600 kilos as a total, two, two times 300. If you do 10 reps with 100 kilos, that's 1,000. So, you know, yes, you're doing a big headline weight, but as a total of work over your workout, it's not very much. So obviously I wanted him, because he was a competitive powerlifter, I wanted him to continue doing his headline figures, but then doing the sort of down and dirty back off sets of, of halving the weight and doing sets of five sets of 12 or something, whatever I programmed him. So I wanted to get him up to 20,000 kilos from 6,000, and I gradually built him up to doing 20,000 kilos as a minimum in his workouts. And his, his work capacity went through the roof and he could actually go up the stairs. He quite simply, even though it looked amazing what he was doing, like doubles at 300 kilos, actually he wasn't doing that much work if you, if you did it as a tonnage for the workout at all. He was doing 6,000 kilos. You know, you could, with a 24 kilo dumbbell, you could quickly rack up a kettlebell, sorry, you could quickly rack up 6,000 kilos. You know, he wasn't doing enough work. You know, when I did pull-ups, I did 27,000 kilos. You know, he was doing 6,000 as a competitive body uh, powerlifter. Because he wasn't, he wasn't quantifying the weight he actually lifted as a total uh, for his workout. So his work capacity was rubbish. His headline figures were amazing. His work capacity was rubbish. Or not, not rubbish, not sufficient would be a better term. So, which, which also improved his life. Absolutely. Like, it's no good being able to deadlift 300 kilos for two and then not be able to make it up your stairs to your bed um, without blowing out your ass, you know. So, yeah, his work capacity just wasn't, you know, his headline figures weren't damaged by the fact that we increased his, his work capacity. He just got a better, he was a better human, you know. For, I don't mean, you know, ethically, just as a person, he could do more. Yeah. 
um, as a 29 year old, you don't want to be blown out your bum like going up the stairs. Just not not a good. There's no longevity in that. Because by the time you're 40, you're going to be dead. Um, so yeah, so I think it's, it's interesting that as as weightlifters, whether that's powerlifting or whatever, um, a lot of people don't quantify how much weight they lift in a in a session. If I ask somebody how much did you lift in your session today, they'll tell me their top set. I'm like, no, there's a total, like all your work sets. You know, I only ever count weight over 100 kilos. I never count anything under 100 kilos unless it's my body weight, if I'm doing body weight stuff. And you can even quantify press-ups. You know, the rough calculation is when you do a press-up, you've got 60% of your body weight on your hands. So you, you times your body weight times the reps times 0.6, and it will give you a total. It's a rough total, but it's one that you can use. Was it fifty-eight point six percent? Is the I think that's the is it? Yeah, fifty-eight point so sixty percent. Yeah, yeah. but around so point sixty. And so you just times point six. It will give you a figure, and you and because of how much weight you've lifted as a total in sessions, a variable you can change it, and if you can change it, you can use it to improve. I don't understand why people don't. I, I really. It, 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 Whenever I've asked people how much weight did you lift in your session, they have no idea. I've never had anybody actually say to me, yeah, I did 20,000 kilos. Because when I work out, no matter how I feel, I will do a minimum of 10,000 kilos, minimum. Like, do you ever do less than 10,000 kilos? So if that's a squat, 100 times, you know, 100 kilos, 10 by 10, that's, that's my 10,000. You know, so that's, that's my non-negotiable. I will always do more than that. That's a really interesting way to think about it. And I don't, I don't think I've, because I'm not widely read on sort of bodybuilding theories and that mm. side of things. But it's the first time I've ever had anybody explain it in that way in terms of the way they approach it is total amount lifted within a session. I think, I think any variable is important because you can change it. And if you can change it, you can use it to improve, like I say. So... Mm. Um, so so you can do 10,000 kilos, sorry, you can do 10,000 kilos, say it takes you half an hour to do 10 sets of 10 with, um, in a squat with 100 kilos. You could use the same amount, but then just use time as a variable. So do 10,000 in 25 minutes rather than half an hour. You've increased your work output and therefore your intensity. So you can use time and total weight lifted and you can combine those, those, they're both variables, you can change both, so you can use both to improve. It's a way of looking at it. Yeah. I, I do this when, say it's programmed a certain weight, so it's a, say it's a 32 and a half kilogram dumbbell, which I don't have. I'll work out what the total weight is in reps. So yeah. say it's, two rep, it's 10 reps, so 325, and then I divide it by what dumbbell I've got, and then yeah. do the reps, do that many yeah. reps instead. Perfect. Yeah, perfect. I mean, that's, yeah. So you're looking at your total lifted, however that, that may be made up, you know, whatever weight's made that In a up. different way, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a perfect way of looking at it. And that's a good way, actually, for people that have limited, especially if they're following a workout, say, workout of the day or something, and they haven't got that specific weight. What you just said there is a really good way of them achieving the same outcome with whatever weight they've got, if they quantify it. Yeah, I mean, 
Is it? I guess with a heavier weight, it becomes a slightly different stimulus because yes. you can't go as fast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of weight moved, weight the, moved. The, yeah. the dog, you know, it's that's the yeah. way I work it out. Well, that's a good way of working it. Yeah. Can I just say though, Paul, um, you should never ever, and this is a public safety announcement, never ever substitute a wall ball for throwing a dumbbell or kettlebell in the air. <laughs> which why not which you have done and you have you done yes he has <laughs> so I didn't have a wall ball so I used a nine kilogram kettlebell <laughs> <laughs> I've got good hands from playing rugby it's fine you'd have to have yeah, I'd have no teeth left <laughs> and now I use a 12 kilogram slam ball instead uh, <laughs> a wise man <laughs> you learn from your mistakes. I would have found out the hard way for sure. There's no <laughs> catch, kind of. <laughs> it's fine. I was more worried about dropping it and making it no- making a noise off the neighbours <laughs> or damaging the floor. Damaging the floor, yeah, that's the other thing. <sighs> it's all good. It's all good. Is there anything else you would like to ask me? Um, one thing does your son see you work out you obviously go for a run with him yeah does he see you work out and does he kind of go can I I don't know how old your son is but can he's, I can I do that yeah he's mine um Charlie's very different to me um which I I absolutely love because I don't want him to be like me um and like he came to me with the running I've exposed him to various sports I mean he's not He's got his mum's coordination, and which isn't great. Um, so things like tennis and rugby talks and rugby, and yeah, just two left feet, two left hands, and so we're really struggling for. He's a good swimmer, so he is good at that, really good. Um, but not much else was he like taking to easily. And then we watched the Great South Run last October, which is a beautiful event for Portsmouth. Such I've done a- that. Such a feel good. Um, I love it, and I always take him down to watch. And we went down afterwards and said, I want to do that. And I said, Well, that's great, but we're gonna to have to train, so we've got a year, but we're gonna to have to run at least three times a week. He said, Yeah, let's do that. So that's how that came about. Can I just say, Yeah, when you come out of the Docklands and you yeah. start coming back towards the finish, yeah, it's fine when you go through the housing estate. Yeah, it's the wind. And you hit the front and you're just running that last bit into headwind. Yeah, I had that on Saturday when we did the um, park run because it's the same yeah. bit coming Is back. It? In the headwind, yeah, yeah, all the way. Oh, um, God. He does some train. Um, he's never shown that much interest in it um, at the moment, which is fine. And um, like when, he, when his mum drops him off, yeah, he'll walk in and he'll say, Daddy, what are you training today? So uh, it's very much part of what he sees. Yeah, it's it's in, his, in his head. Yeah, and he sees it as normal, you know, and it's not, unfortunately, it's not normal. Yeah. Um, I think there's only like 5% of uh, the population who've got a gym membership. I appreciate there's probably another 5 or 10% that do stuff outside and sports and stuff like that, but there's still not a huge percentage of the, of the country. So it's not normal, unfortunately. Certainly what I do isn't normal anyway, but like just generally it's not normal. So he sees it as normal. Um, and he sees me not only train myself, but train other people. 
and it's great having him here for that because they all love him and it's great and um he'll sometimes like somebody's doing press-ups he's like get your hips up so he's got his own little um way of uh, eating as well um but i think he'll one day he'll like I'm never going to pressurise him to do it. Like the seed is sown, he's seen me do it, and they do say that a son, and I'm sure it's the same for the daughters, but a son will um, follow your example, not your not your advice. So I, all I can do is do what I do, and he sees it. And if he goes to it one day, but his running is excellent. He's really really good, and he loves it. You know, he said this morning we were running and it was just before the storm hit and it was windy and nobody else was about. And he said, we're so lucky to live where we are, he said, as we're running along, along the seafront. You know, we are. We're very lucky. And he, I love the fact he appreciates that, you know. And, um, yeah, if he ever wants to do weights, then he knows who to come to. But at the moment, he's not showing any. I, I think he may show an interest when... He has more of an interest in girls uh, when he's a couple of, or three years old. I don't know. We'll see. But, you know, the fact he's he does the running with me and is brilliant and I'm happy with that. And also, like, you know, we went to, we did Penny Fan and Corn Dew up in South Wales and we're doing Ben Nevis in a couple of weeks. So, because I love the mountains as well, I've done a lot of mountaineering in my life and um, spent a lot of time in Norway in the mountains there. So, and Scotland. So, yeah, we're doing Ben Nevis. So, the things like that, he really does enjoy. So, yeah, I'm not too worried he's not doing weights or shows any real interest. It's it's not necessarily what he does, it's just that he's interesting and enjoys doing something yeah. that yeah. isn't just sitting and it's no. getting out and experiencing no. things and I think whatever he chooses to then do at least yeah. he's been exposed to that and he sees yeah. that that yeah. that side of side of life is a possibility yeah regardless of whether he chooses to take yeah. it up or not yeah I'm, I'm cool with whatever he does and I, I'm really happy he loves being up in the mountains he loves um, running if that's all he ever does, that's brilliant. That's so much more than most, you know. And if he enjoys it, he'll keep doing it. And he does enjoy it, so he will keep doing it, I'm sure. So I'm not going to make him do something he doesn't enjoy because he won't keep doing it. There's no point. Yeah, exactly. So, you know. so where where can people find you if they want to kind of find you? Um. Instagram is what I use. Um, also strength coach. Um, yeah, it's just there really. Um, I post everything I do on there. Uh, quite often people say, oh, "Do you do stuff other than what you post?" And I know that's what I do. <laughs> and it is. That's what I do. <laughs> yeah, I don't secretly go and train arms when I say don't, you don't need to train arms. I go and secretly and I train arms. You know what I post is what I do. Um, yeah, that's it really. Just, I've had a lot of support, some really cool people. I've, I've made some really good connections. I've had some odd things as well. Um, <laughs> some really odd things. But, yeah, on the whole, like, really, really cool interactions with people. And, it, and it's, 
it's been interesting the last year. You know, I've gained like 130 followers, 130,000 followers in a year, which is by doing nothing special is accidental. I don't know how really. One video just went absolutely viral. It's me doing five pull-ups inside. 17 second video. It got something like 6 million views. You know, an algorithm went whoop, showed it to loads of people and suddenly it all happened. None of this was planned. You know, I'm enjoying it, but it wasn't planned and I don't use hashtags and I don't look at what time of day you should be posting. I just do what I do and post it and it just seems to have grown. And I think slightly things like COVID probably helped because I train at home mostly. Mm. Um, And a lot of people over COVID got used to training at home. And a lot of people work from home. More people work from home now than ever since COVID as well. And I think... Perhaps what I do resonates a little bit because I'm not in some plush gym all the time. I'm outside in my garden with a barbell or a pull-up bar. Yeah, as as you mentioned earlier, um, in terms of the the the, um, the the five percent of people who have gym memberships, and then mm. the other the other the other people who it's it's not really quantifiable. But I think mm. um, we us three are part of the maybe weirdos who all have pull-up bars in our back gardens. Mm. But I'll tell you what, there's a lot of companies sold a lot of pull-up bars because of me. (laughs) 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 There is. And and that that weight vest I bought recently, that sold out on Amazon. Somebody went to look for it and they go, it's gone on Amazon. I was like, all right. You know, I think, yeah, I mean... That's an influencer, isn't it? That's a yeah, definite bona fide, bona fide influencer. You get to buy stuff or something. Yeah. Just need one of those blue ticks. Somebody called me blue ticks. Yeah, I don't do that. Yeah, I'm not buying because you can buy them. Now it seems a bit counterproductive. I'm not. I'm not going to pay them however much it is to give me a tick if I'm not having. No. It makes it makes no difference to me whether I've got one or not. But yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I think people train at home more. And I think that's my style of training has resonated because it's very simple. And it is something that people can replicate, maybe not completely to the volume I do, but replicate in style. And I think it's, repli- you know, if you can replicate it, people are doing it. Whereas if you've got like the most high tech gym machines and you, you only train at home, they're not going to follow somebody that does just high tech gym machines. I'm very basic in what I do and it's achievable for, for a lot of people it's achievable you know if they stick at it with the basic kit that's it that's it nice one thank you Simon it's been good fun it's been really good really enjoyed it great questions I really appreciate the questions made me think <laughs> perhaps I need to think a bit deeper about what I do perhaps I'm a bit shallow well, maybe not <laughs> But, but yeah, thanks. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for inviting me. It's been an absolute pleasure, gents. Thank you.